Elementary and uh, middle school, you guys can go ahead and be dismissed. I've always thought that one of the most gut-wrenching scenes from the life of Christ is found in Mark chapter 6. And here Mark describes the demise and the eventual execution of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist. And the story is just kind of so ridiculous um, how it plays out. Uh, John is critical of King Herod um, because of some sin in his life. And so the king takes him and throws him in prison. And then they have this, this big dinner, this banquet, and he, he invites his, the king invites his stepdaughter to come and dance to entertain his guests. And he's so pleased with their dancing that he promises, whatever it is you wish, I'll give it to you. And so she goes to her mom, who can't stand John the Baptist, and says, what should I ask for? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so she goes back and she says that to the king, and the king it's certainly not what he wants to do, um, but he's kind of pressured by the, the guests there, and he wants to look like he's powerful, and so they carry out the execution, and John the Baptist is beheaded. And I can't imagine how painful that was when that news got back to Jesus. I mean, I mean not only a friend, but this is his family, his cousin, the guy who baptized him, the guy who faithfully served him and went ahead and prepared the way for him killed in such a senseless act of violence. And it had to take a pretty heavy emotional toll on Christ when he heard that. And in that state of suffering, I would imagine, just like anybody else, that that Jesus would want to just have some time alone. You know, just some time to grieve, some time to kind of collect his thoughts and his strength. I know how emotionally kind of drained I can be when I hear and experience something tragic in my own life. I mean, it takes me a while to kind of recover from that and to, and to be willing to engage with other people. So I want you to kind of hold that kind of pain that we just introduced there in your thoughts for just a minute. We'll get back to it. Throughout this series on the Jesus Way, we've really kind of also been shedding light on the way of this world, the American way of upward mobility, and of, of me-centeredness that's been ingrained in each one of us um, and continues to be on a daily basis our whole life. And we've compared those ways to the ways of Jesus, the ways of downward mobility, of others-centeredness. And we've also kind of examined then where, where does our way line up? And if you're like me, I have this way, the Bob way, that's kind of in the convoluted middle somewhere. Right, still probably has some things of this world, my way of operating that really looks more like the worldly way, kind of combined with my best attempts to, to follow Jesus in the best way that I can. And so maybe it'd be like Jesus light or something you might call it. And my way is described pretty well by Paul David Tripp in this quote. He says, let's be honest. Because of sin, we're self-centered people. We expect others to serve us and treat us as the most important item on the agenda. When suffering enters our door, why would that change? In fact, our selfishness may become more exposed under trial. 
In suffering, we expect others to serve us, this time with pity and compassion. And we probably feel as if we're even more important considering the current circumstances. Don't you know what I'm going through? You should pay extra attention to me. In short, when the heat is turned up in our lives, we can become very demanding towards other people that they meet our needs, while simultaneously kind of ignoring whatever needs they may have at the time. And as we've discussed early in the gospel narratives, Jesus is constantly surrounded by crowds of people, hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people. And they're coming to him not just to kind of hang out. (laughs) They're coming to him with needs, demanding to be healed, to be comforted, right? In pain, they're hurting. They're coming with hope that Jesus is going to do something that's going to radically change their circumstances. They're coming with anticipation. And I don't know about you, but I would be annoyed by that, (laughs) But how did Jesus respond? Time and time again, we see verses like this in the Gospels. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Jesus was filled with compassion for those in need. And really, he was just modeling the heart of his Father. All right? In the Old Testament, in Psalm 103, 8, it says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's who the Heavenly Father is, and his very nature is compassion. And so his Son is likewise filled with compassion. I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, if you would, page 703 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be starting in verse 30, and so there's kind of a couple events that have just happened. One is the news gets back to Jesus about the execution of John, while also, as Justin talked about last week, the disciples that have been sent out two by two to go into the villages and teach the gospel and heal people, they've just arrived back from that trip. And so Jesus is kind of processing with them a couple of different things that are going on. So let's look at verse 30. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And I don't know about you, but if I had a family member that had just been executed, I would not be in the mood for crowds. And if I was going across the water and I saw people running around to beat me to the other side, I'd be like, hold up, fellas. (laughs) Back this boat up. I can't handle this today. 
And in addition to that, it says that they were hungry, they were tired, they'd just been out serving, and, and man, that's a recipe for disaster. For me, hungry and tired does not make me want to care about other people, right? That's when I become most self-centered, right? And it becomes about me. But Jesus responds with compassion. And I read a sermon this week that, that said that the gospel writers here with this word, they actually had to create a new word to show and to try to communicate the depth of empathy that Jesus had for these people that were lost and broken and hurting. Whatever words they had for compassion in the Greek weren't good enough, weren't deep enough to describe Jesus' heart for his people, these sheep without a shepherd. And, And again, I can't get over how much Jesus had to be hurting himself in this moment. But despite his own pain, He doesn't demand first that his disciples and then the crowd validate his hurt. This wasn't an opportunity for comparison for him. He didn't even share it with the crowd. You don't see Jesus getting over there and saying, hey, everybody just shut up and just sit down for a minute and let me tell you about my day. Let me tell you about what I've just been through. My cousin's head was cut off for following me. I don't know what you guys got going on in your life, but I doubt it's worse than that. Right? He didn't do that. I mean, his disciples knew. He shared his pain with a few people. But ultimately, he allowed God to to minister to his heart and to take that pain as much as he could in that moment in ways that, you know, the Bible describes that God enters in and, and gives us a peace that surpasses understanding so that Jesus could be free to love others without expectation. Several months ago, I did a sermon called Something's Always Wrong. And the gist of that message was that if we're waiting around for relatively good circumstances in our life before we dive into the pain in other people's lives, we'll never get there. Because something's always going to be wrong in our life. And we're always going to feel, I guess I would say, we're rarely going to feel like we have the ability, the energy, the capacity to bear other people's burdens. We're rarely going to feel like that. Too often our focus tends to be on ourselves and what we feel like we can handle. At least I know for me it does. And a lot of times we kind of disregard the truth that the very presence of an infinitely compassionate God resides in our hearts. A God of abundance, whose very job it is, whose very desire it is, is to expand our capacity to show love and care and compassion to other people. He's dying to to make you able to to handle more, to, to, to bear more burden around you, to show his love in that way. Now, if you were to rattle off the top 10 character traits of Bob, compassion wouldn't even be on your radar, okay? Ask my runners, all right? I don't don't have a lot of compassion, and I, I try to hide behind, well, I just wasn't born with much, right? So try to let myself off the hook. I wasn't wired that way. But in my redeemed heart as a follower of Christ, is a God who is full of compassion, who's in me, 
And I have complete access to that if I choose to allow that compassion to flow out of me instead of hiding behind my supposed inability to be compassionate. You see, Jesus understood and embraced his calling. And in moments like this, it gave clarity to what he needed to do and how he needed to respond. He had long before entered into a covenant with God where he understood that he was going to be the sufferer and humanity was going to be the recipients of his love. He had prayed, God, not my will, but yours be done. And man, when we were singing that song this morning, right, we were singing those very words, not my will, but yours be done. I was thinking of this. And when it comes to showing compassion and loving other people, man, we have to pray that. Sometimes when we sing those words, we think about not your will, but mine be done. We think about, oh, my career or my job. But a lot of times it's my desire to really love and enter into other people's hurt and to walk with people and to do life with people. And in that can we say, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we surrender our life to Christ, we make that same pledge, right, to lay down our life for our friends and to love our enemies. So everywhere we go, we're demanded to, to love and to lay down. And, you know, I, I, I'm just guessing. I'm, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing that when the disciples saw the crowds, they saw work. And they saw demands. And they probably weren't that excited about it. Right? They were just tired. They just wanted to be alone. But you see, Jesus didn't see a crowd. As we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus had this unbelievable ability to see each individual person. Right? We talked about how he healed people who came to the house that he was at. And it said that he, he healed them one at a time. And so when Jesus sees the crowd that day, he doesn't see a crowd. He sees Susan and Bob and David and all these people, these individuals. And because he is God in very nature, he knows their story. He knows why they're demanding sometimes. He knows why they're in need, why they can be annoying. Do we take the time to understand where the pain is coming from in others. A lot of us here are educators. I was an educator. Some people would say I still am. But we know what it's like as teachers. We have classrooms full of needy children day after day after day. And sometimes kids can act up for attention. Other times they withdraw But instead of always just being frustrated with our demanding students or our demanding co-workers or our demanding teammates, do we take the time to find out what's going on in their home life? What happened at home last night that might be making them act like this this morning? Or do we just get annoyed and frustrated with people? When we know someone's story... Our ability to show compassion takes a huge leap forward. I know it's been true with with my runners especially. 
Because sometimes I can get frustrated because they're just not doing what I want them to do or they're not showing up when I want them to show up. But when I take the time to actually sit down with them and say, God, what's going on in your life? And I find out what their life is like and how many other things are on their radar besides just running, it immediately makes me be like, man, don't worry about it. (laughs) What we're doing here compared to what you're dealing with there doesn't even compare. And my level of compassion just takes a huge leap forward instead of just being like it's cut and dry, it's black or white, either you do this or you don't get to do this. It changes me. And the flip side is also true. The less we know people, the greater freedom that we give ourselves to just ignore their needs. And I don't know if it's true for you parents, but a lot of times there can be a greater tenderness in me for my own children because I know their story, right? And some of the things that they deal with in life are because of my bad parenting. (laughs) And so I have a lot of compassion for them because they've had to overcome having me as their dad. And God loves all of us as a father loves their children. And he asks us to model that to everyone around us. And he says, guys, begin with the people in your own home. If you can't love and show compassion to the very people that you live with, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hollow when you try to go outside of these walls. And then beyond our immediate home, he says, love the people in your church family. If we can't love the people that call Wellspring their home, then it's going to become very difficult for us to go outside these walls and to really love, especially if people in here see us loving people out there and they're thinking, man, why don't they love me like that? And then it says, I want you to love everyone out in the world around you as well. If we are to live in the compassionate way of Jesus, if we are to live in the compassionate way of Jesus and we can't look around this room and not be filled with hurt, pity, compassion for the burdens of the people in this room, the things they're bearing. And the reason that a lot of us don't feel any of that sometimes we walk into this place is because we don't know anybody. We don't know their stories, nor are we taking the time to do that. And that's on us. We're not here this morning to be entertained. We're not here this morning to be fed, to be filled up. We're here to do life with each other, to help one another become more like Christ together. And that requires an investment on your part and mine. We can't go out into the streets of St. Joseph if we are to live in the compassionate way of Jesus and not hurt for the lost and broken people that we see. Charles Spurgeon, you may have heard of him. He's one of the most famous pastors of all time. He pastored a church in the late 1800s in London. This is what he said in one of his sermons to his congregation one morning when he was preaching on compassion. And I kind of changed some of the wording to make it not so old, old English, but there's still some of that in there because I couldn't think of a different word. <laughs> he says this, So he's saying to his congregation, he says, Surely, brothers and sisters, if you love him and wish to be like him, you cannot look on this congregation without pity. You cannot go out into the streets of London and stand in the high roads among the surging masses for half an hour without saying, Whither away these souls? Which road are they traveling? Will they all meet in heaven? What? You live in London, move about in this great metropolis, and do you never have the heartache? Never feel your soul ready to burst with pity, then shame upon you. 
ask yourself whether you have the spirit of Christ at all. In this congregation, where we all moved with pity as we should be, I should not have to complain, as I sometimes must, that persons come in and out of here in want of someone to speak to them, to console, or to commune with them in their loneliness, that they find, and I'm sorry, and they find no helper. Time was when such a thing never occurred, but in conversing with inquirers lately, I have met with several cases in which persons in a distressed state of mind have said that they would have given anything for half an hour's conversation with any Christian to whom they might have opened their hearts. They came from the country, attended our church service, and no one spoke to them. I am sorry it should be so. You used to watch for souls, most of you. Very careful for you to speak with those whom you saw again and again. I do pray you mend that matter. If you have any bowels of mercy, you should be looking out for opportunities to do good. Oh, never let a a poor wounded soul faint for want of healing. And I can relate to the people in his church. There are times when I feel like I just don't have any compassion to give. I'm just kind of worn out. And those are the times when we need to honestly go to God and say, God, you need to break my heart for the people that break your heart. And you need to expand my capacity for compassion because it's not okay to stay indifferent if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus. And my heart is so fickle. I never know when the emotion level for me, what, like what's going to hit me, you know? And a lot of times I can be real emotional when I travel. You know, not like on vacation, <laughs> on mission trips, you know? I remember when I was in college and I was in Haiti and I was at a, a hospital for babies that were dying from tuberculosis, things that our kids get shots for. And I'm holding this child who's probably going to die soon. And I remember just as a 20-year-old just just crushed, weeping uncontrollably. I remember being in Nicaragua in a trash dump in Managua, the capital, and just seeing the number of lives that, like they build homes and streets in the dump, like with signs saying, you know, 502, garbage dump way, or whatever. Like they built a town in the dump. That was their life. But then I can walk around the streets of St. Joe and see broken and hurting people and messed up things and doesn't even faze me. My heart's just hard as a rock. I want you to look back at verse 34 in Mark chapter 6. What did Jesus do to show them compassion? What does it say? What's that? He began to teach them. One of the ways in which Jesus showed compassion, it says, he began teaching them many things. He didn't just give them a big hug and say, oh, it's going to be all right. He taught them the truth of the word of God. He cared for their hearts by sharing that truth. 
Is that part of how we show compassion to people? Because when people come to us and they're hurting, yes, they need a hug and a pat on the back, but they also need hope and something that they can count on to be able to see the potential beyond their current set of circumstances for what God might do. They need to be reminded of who he is, regardless of their circumstances, that's never going to change. And it's compassionate when we share those things. And Jesus, if you follow his story throughout here, he was, he was perfectly able to, to live in this balance of invita- invitation and challenge. He, he could meet people and he could care for them and, and heal them and do those things, but he could also challenge them in ways you're just like, whoa. Sometimes his truth is challenging, right? Because in his care for people, he also would tell them, guys, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to lay your life down. You've got to take up your cross and follow me, and people are going to persecute you and hate you because of me. Like, he didn't hide that truth. And so being compassionate doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth to people. There's a balance there. And we can tend, as people, we tend to fall on too much on one side or the other. We tend to be people who are the real soft-hearted and really caring people but never really confront people with truth at all. (laughs) Or we tend to be kind of hard-hearted and we hit people with the truth but we never really love them and show some balance there. And so it just sounds like condemnation and judgment all the time, right? That's why it's so important for us to be in the Word. So we have something of value to give to people when they come to us and they're in need. And I love this quote by uh, an author named Ruth Haley Barton in a book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. We read it with our staff a couple of years ago, and I've never forgotten this. She says this, One of the things I know for sure is that those who are looking to us for spiritual, spiritual sustenance need us first and foremost to be spiritual seekers ourselves. They need us to keep searching for the bread of life that feeds our own souls so that we can guide them to places of sustenance for their own souls. Then, rather than offering the cold stone of past devotionals, regurgitated apologetics, or someone else's musings about the spiritual life, we will have bread to offer that is warm from the oven of our intimacy with God. Put that last part of the quote up there again. Bread to offer that is warm from the oven of our intimacy with God. If somebody this afternoon came to you hurting, broken, and desperate in need, would you have that to offer them? Bread from the oven of your own intimacy with God. Something fresh, something hopeful. You know when you go to a restaurant, like I love Texas Roadhouse, all right? Not so much how loud it is and the dancing they do, but the food. And you get those rolls, right? When those rolls hit your table, you want them to be so freaking hot, right? That that cinnamon butter just like melts, right? And it's just like, oh, there's nothing worse than sitting down and getting a a cold, hard roll, when you're just like desperate for the warm one, 
And you know, when people come to you and they're hurting and broken, the last thing they want from their spiritual friend is an old cold roll from a few months ago, that women's retreat you went to, that when you try to share it, doesn't really have the same passion that it had that one time. You know what they want from you? They want that time you spent in God's word this morning, that prayer you prayed before you went to bed for them last night that says, man, let me tell you what God is gonna do. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you how much he loves you. Let me tell you what he can do in this situation in your life. That's what they want from us. And that's what God gave this crowd. Jesus gave this crowd this morning. But Jesus' compassionate response doesn't end with just sharing the truth with them. If you read on in this passage, this crowd that's gathered kind of becomes, morphs into the crowd that Jesus feeds, the feeding of the 5,000. That's this crowd. The, the day is getting late, and everybody realizes these people haven't eaten, right? We've got to feed them. And so Jesus, in his compassionate love for them, provides a meal for them in a miraculous way. And it's just another reminder that love must show itself in action, too. James reminds us of this in James chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so true compassion combines elements of everything that Jesus was about. His compassionate way was characterized by individual attention. Go ahead and put those slides up there. Individual attention and personal touch, right? We said he had time and he touched and healed each person. His compassionate way was point, paint, I'm sorry, way pointed people to the truth of God's word. And finally, his compassionate way provided for their physical and emotional needs. It was a holistic and gracious in every way approach. Romans 5.8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed each one of us immense compassion when we were so undeserving. He showed every one of us immense compassion when we were so undeserving. And if we want to grow in our ability to show multifaceted compassion, we have to begin by reminding ourselves of that truth each and every day. Again, a writer, Paul David Tripp, said it like this. It is our own daily experience. If you can put that slide up there, Jason. It's our own daily experience of the rescue of the gospel that gives you a passion for people to experience the same rescue. Or as Spurgeon put it, how can you call yourself a follower of Christ and never have the heartache, never feel your soul ready to burst with pity when you see the masses around you in desperate need of healing? And so this morning, I want to challenge you to recount your own life and how many times in your life 
How many times yesterday could you exclaim, he had compassion on me? When I was lost and self-centered and worshiping other idols in my life besides him, success, ambition, material things, power, sex, relationships, whatever it is that we were hoping in before we met Jesus. While we were doing those things, it says that Jesus entered in and met us in our need and showed compassion on us through the love and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This past week, when I was busy putting on a cross-country meet and just distracted by a lot of details in my life, God was compassionate on me, compassionate on me by giving me a wife that loved me and served me and didn't complain or demand about my schedule and my inattentiveness. But she was just Jesus to me. even though I didn't appreciate it that much. And Friday, after I wrote this message, it was really fresh on my mind, I got a call from a a kid that used to be one of my runners back in Liberty like 20 years ago. And he was a kid I was really close to, and he went on to, he's been on Young Life staff for a while. And man, he's just broken. He's in a really hard place right now. And some of it is just stuff that him and his wife went through as kids. They really had just really bad upbringings, both of them. And so they're in counseling now, kind of trying to deal with some of that stuff for the first time. And they've had some of their own traumatic events that have happened in their marriage that just complicate that. They've been in ministry for quite a while, and and because of the nature of their ministry, they have to raise quite a bit of support. And they just had a rough go financially. They're on reduced pay all of this pressure and these things that my friend is dealing with just are crashing down on him. And to the point where he can't sleep, he's just so anxious and he just, he's like, I just can't even sit still. I just get up and I just walk for hours. Like, I just don't even know what to do with myself. And I'm on the other end of the phone. He's down in Kansas City and I'm, you know, and I'm thinking through like kind of what does compassion look like for me right now? What does it demand of me? And so one of the things that demands of me and demanded of me in that moment is that I really listen to what he's saying and I give him time to just talk and not try to just give him advice or say, oh yeah, I had this one time in my life where things were hard too and this is what I did. I listen and try to understand where he is and I validate what he's sharing with me. And I don't try to just give him easy biblical answers Oh, you know, Romans 8, 28 says, you know, God's going to work it all out for the good of those who trust in him. That doesn't really help right now. (laughs) But I did need to remind him of who God is in the midst of it, the hope that he could have on the other side of this. I prayed for him, tried to remind him of what's true. But it also demands, like we just looked at, it demands action. It demands feeding and meeting this tangible need. And more than anything, he just needs my presence right now. And so I set up a time to meet with him next week, and I said, who do you have in your life that's kind of caring for you? Because he used to kind of have a committee of folks that worked with him to help raise money. He's like, really, nobody. I was just like, man, that's not going to (laughs) work. 
I was like, when we come to this meeting on Wednesday, I want you to come with a list of people who you trust that you want in the circle with you. I'll call them. I'll set up the meeting, and we're going to get some people to help you. And, and that's not my norm. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that this was fresh, and I had an opportunity to do something about it, and I, I followed through. And it, it, it's going to demand something of me. It's going to demand me driving to Kansas City a few times and taking some time out of my schedule and whatever it might demand. I, I need to be there. And as we take time for communion this morning, I want us all to meditate and I want us to recount the number of times in our life when we would be able to say, he had compassion on me. And just as we go silent and just say, Holy Spirit, just come and remind us and and bring up to memory whatever it is that you want us to remember and just recount, man, when I was here, he was compassionate to me. When I was here, he was compassionate to me in whatever way that he showed up and showed that. And just thank him. Say, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And then also as we sit here this morning and do that, and also as we walk away from here, we would pray and say, God, who, who in my life right now is surrounding me? I might not even really have been able to see or maybe it's very pressing, maybe it's kind of been annoying to me, or maybe it's been really demanding to me, and my heart needs to change towards that person. And in what way, God, do I need to change? Do I need to listen? Do I need to understand their story better? Do I need to enter in and share some truth with them? Do I need to do some action and actually cook them a meal, take care of their kids, help them pay for their counseling? What does it demand of me to be compassionate in your way in that person's life right now? And just let him speak to you and then obey. So we'll have some silence and the ushers will dismiss you to come forward and take communion. But just as Jesus gives us a very tangible expression of feeding the sheep, we're actually going to take some bread and eat it. We are to walk away from this experience today and go out into this world and feed his people. That's our call. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your example. God, we thank you that as you saw those crowds, even amidst your own pain, that you allowed God to move through you and to show compassion in a, in a, in a level, at a capacity um, that, that really to them felt like love. 